0: Well, welcome again, Um, keep your Bibles on Daniel 2, 1 through 16, that will be the text that we will study this morning. Last Sunday we looked at a summary of Daniel's ministry in chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. We also discovered through Daniel's example that God rewards faithfulness, in other words, Daniel uh, took a stand not to defile himself with the king's food and drink. He wanted to obey the Word of God, and uh, that faithfulness led to a bunch of blessings and rewards that came to him from God. So God does absolutely reward His children, His people, when they are faithful. He loves to do that for us. And it's not wrong for us to, uh, to pursue faithfulness so that we can be rewarded We just need to make sure that we never exalt the rewards above God Himself because God is our true inheritance and reward. This morning, we're going to begin a five-part mini-series within the broader series of Daniel. This mini-series is based in chapter 2, and I'm calling it Dreams, Death, and Deliverance. You might say that in your bulletin. Uh, The series will go as follows, week one, which would be today. We're going to look at the predicament. That's 1 through 16. Uh, Week 2, we're going to look at the prayer. That's 17 through 23. Week 3, the plan. That's 24 through 30. Week 4, the prediction. That's 31 through 45. And then we'll wrap it up on week 5. We're going to look at the promotion. And that's verses 46 through 49. That's That's the entire chapter right there, if you will. So again, this morning, we're going to look at the predicament which absolutely has to do with dreams, death, and deliverance. Has anyone actually read this entire chapter? Is this like a fascinating story? I mean, it's just incredible. To think that this is a literal historical event in an ancient kingdom is just mind-boggling, and it is. And so I'm fascinated by it, and I can't wait to preach through it. I'm really excited about this first part, the predicament. Well, we've already read verses 1 through 16. Thank you for doing that, Carol. You did an excellent job. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll get to work. Amen? Father, uh, we just pray that um, we asked earlier for the Holy Spirit, uh, that we've invited Him here, and we know that He's here. And uh, we pray that His ministry would be powerful and effective in our lives and our hearts, that You would uh, use the Spirit to take this truth, the Word, the Scripture, and apply it deep down within us, making us uh, a little bit more like Christ, sanctifying us, even uh, in a greater way than as we came in the door as a certain type of person, that we would leave here a little bit more like Christ. And so uh, we we pray that you would um, use your power, Lord, through the Spirit to accomplish that sanctifying work. And uh, by the end of this message, I pray that uh, our hope and uh, our faith would be more firmly planted in God Himself. And uh, we just give you this time and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, we're going to begin with verse 1. I'll read it again. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The reign of Nebuchadnezzar here refers to not his overall reign over Babylonia, because that began much earlier than what we're looking at here. But it has to do with his reign over Judah. Uh, You remember in chapter 1 we read how in 605 B.C. he marched into Jerusalem and, uh, and besieged the city and conquered the city and Jerusalem is in the region of Judah and so all of Judah and Jerusalem became subject to him. So this second year has to do with his second year reigning over Judah, over God's people if you will. You know the Israelites always wanted to have uh, kings over them, and, and sometimes those kings weren't Jewish kings. Uh, you get what you ask for, don't you? And so this is this has to do with the reign his reign over Judah. Uh, the second year probably refers to sometime in 602 BC, uh, after sometime after uh, Daniel and his buddies. Uh, completed their re-education or reassignment classes. You remember we looked at that in chapter 1? When they were exiled to Babylon, they were, you know, these young, handsome royalty and they were entered into potentially the king's service, Nebuchadnezzar's service, and they were re-educated. They were taught Chaldean and the the literature and the history of that civilization and those people and what have you. And so uh, it looks like what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar here happened right at the tail end of their training, or right after they graduated, sometime around there. During this second year, uh, the text says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. The dreams, according to chapter 2, were actually one reoccurring dream. Uh, We know that to be true because down in verses 31 through 45, the interpretation is given, and it's given in regard to one dream. So dreams is plural, but what it actually means is that it was, you know, a dream that he kept dreaming. It was one dream that kept coming back, uh, night after night, day after day, if you will. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew that the dream was important uh, because of its content, but he couldn't figure out what it meant He couldn't put it all together. You know, he kept having the same thing, and he he, just—he—he knew it was important because dreams were important in those days, and they might still be today in some ways. But he just—it troubled him so much, so he couldn't figure out what does this mean? Why do I keep having the same dream? It—it actually drove him to sleeplessness or insomnia. How many of you have ever experienced insomnia? How many of you have ever experienced insomnia for more than one night? How many of you have experienced it for like weeks? Is that not like the most miserable thing in the world? I mean, one night of it, I'm like, Lord, take me home, right? It's just, I can't even handle it. It's just, it's like one of the, it's in my top 10 most loathed things. And here's a guy who kept having these dreams. And when the dream came upon him, he would wake up and try to figure out what it is and then couldn't go back to sleep. He had this kind of perpetual insomnia. Any sleep that he got, he'd have the dream and then he'd be awakened again and then he'd stay awake. And so he could not sleep because of this reoccurring perpetual dream and the fact that he couldn't figure it out. In the ancient world, uh, such dreams were thought to be shadows of what lay ahead or of future events. It's the way that people back in those days viewed dreams. If you had this particular dream, it might have something to do with the future. It might be prophetic in a sense Fortune telling or future telling, if you will, in some kind of regard. The interpretation of dreams was therefore important uh, in order that, you know, a king or whoever had it might be able to take whatever steps need to be taken to be able to counter what's going to happen and what they envision through the dream. Maybe to, you know, if if you had a dream about some kind of an event that's coming, then you would, you know, take these precautions. You'd have the dream, you'd understand it, and you'd take these precautionary measures to counter the, you know, those events or what have you, or at least to be ready for them. Uh, think of Pharaoh and Joseph in Genesis 41. There's a great example of how this worked. Pharaoh had a dream that he didn't understand. He couldn't figure it out. It, it was a perpetual ongoing dream, and it had the same effect on him that it had on Nebu- a dream had on Nebuchadnezzar here. And what happens, God gave Joseph the interpretation and then he gave it to Pharaoh and Pharaoh was able to store up grain and because the dream had to do with a massive, it had had to do with seven years of surplus and then seven years of terrible drought and famine and what was he able to do once he got the interpretation? He was able to store up grain and ultimately preserve the Egyptians and I would say uh, incredibly important he was able to um, uphold or sustain the remnant of Israel, which was in Egypt at that time. Now, that's a great example of a dream that has some kind of a future impact, and then you understanding it and you preparing for it. And so that's why Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he kept having this dream. He couldn't figure it out. He was very, very worried and anxious and concerned about the implications. If I can't understand it, how can I prepare for something that's coming? And quite frankly, the parallels between Genesis 41 and Daniel chapter 2 are really extraordinary. It it really, it's kind of a very similar scenario playing out. Both deal with dreams and and death, the potential for death, and deliverance. It's almost like a mimic story in a different context with a few different facets. Uh, Let's look at verse 2. Then the king commanded the magicians, or that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. Okay, so what happens here is the king has this reoccurring dream. He's got insomnia. He wants to figure it out. He's desperate. He's worried. He hasn't had any sleep. Probably pretty cranky. And what he does is he calls for four different groups of counselors to come stand before him. Magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Now, we talked about the magicians, enchanters, and sorcerers last week. They weren't really like these David Copperfield, Chris Angel types of guys. Uh, They were usually a type of psychic or a type of chemist or something like that. And there's one that's added to the list here. We saw the three in chapter one. Here we see another one, and that's the Chaldeans. Well, the people group, the Babylonian people were called Chaldeans. But that's not what Chaldeans here is in reference to. It's not a generalized generic term for the Chaldean people. It is in reference to a specific group of counselor of the king. And here they were elite astrologers. Uh, astrologers would, you know, read the stars and look at the stars and you know, you know, the whole horoscope kind of thingy and you know, that kind of angle. They were those types of guys. They would read the stars and try to get a sense for what's happening or what's going to happen. So he calls them all to himself and they stand before him. And what you must understand here is that, you know, God doesn't want us to, you know, have a sermon on each of these groups of wise men, if you will. God's point in his word here is to illustrate how The full body of wise men in Babylon were represented here in these groups. Uh, What what we should get out of uh, verse 2 here is that when Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, he called the best of the best to himself to give him interpretation. And these four groups represented literally the larger group known as the wise men of Babylon. So he's got the best of the best there. And why, why, why does Daniel, why does God include this point here? Because as we're going to see, the best of the best in terms of human wisdom and human giftedness could not interpret and that the wisdom of these wise men pales in comparison to the wisdom of God as we will see later on in the chapter when God gives the interpretation. And so it's like, man, he brought out the best of the best, but they were nothing. They couldn't even figure it out. That's the point here. So he's got these guys standing before him. They're the best of the best. Each one does a different thing, and they're all servants of the king. Now look at verses 3 and 4. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And that just reminds me of Martin Luther King. Every time I read that, I had a dream. I had a dream. And then he says this, my spirit, that's the center of who he is, my whole person, if you will, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then in verse 4, the Chaldeans, the, you know, expert astrologers said to the king in Aramaic, that's another language, Uh, they probably would have been speaking Chaldean at the time, but they spoke to him in Aramaic, O king, live forever, exclamation point, Right? O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Basically, what they said was, we're here to serve you. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar told them that he had had a dream that he just could not understand, that it, to the point where it troubled him, he lost, you know, he lost the sleep, his spirit was troubled, and he just couldn't handle it. And it was the Chaldeans who stepped forward first. It was the elite astrologers, and it says they spoke to him in Aramaic. Uh, This is significant for a number of reasons, Uh, the use of the Aramaic here. Uh, The eminent Hebrew scholar Samuel Driver, he was an Englishman, he believed that although Aramaic was the universal language at that time, sort of like English is throughout the world in a way, uh, Aramaic might have been the general language of the peoples in that community, It was not, he believed, it was not commonly used in Babylon. So Aramaic was popular in the surrounding countries and nations, but in parts of Babylon, or at least in the city of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar's palace was, it was not the language of that city. Uh, The language of the city was Chaldee, which is the language of the Chaldeans, which is the very language that Daniel and his buddies were taught. Another word for that language is Syriac, if you've ever heard of that. That was the primary language in Babylon. So it's interesting that that these guys used a language with the king that the king was familiar with, that he knew. Because Nebuchadnezzar, if you look at Daniel, you'll know that he speaks Hebrew, you'll know that he speaks Chaldee, and you'll know that he speaks Aramaic. But it's interesting that this particular group chose the language that wasn't common. And I think, according to uh, driver's estimation, the reason why they did that was because they wanted to keep their conversation with the king between them and the king. They didn't want the other guys around them, the other wise men, the other experts, to know what they were talking about with the king because they imagined that these other groups and these other guys did not speak or write in Aramaic. And, and it could be, if this is true, it could be the reason why they were doing this is because they were trying to mask their ignorance. You know, they didn't want others to hear their conversation because if they, if, if they could not meet the king's wishes then they would look like buffoons. They would look like fools. I think that's probably why they used that language. And, you know, I thought about the time, I wish Carl was here to hear this, and maybe he'll go back and listen. I don't know. But I remember uh, when I worked at the uh, stereo shop with him, and, uh, you know, I did that on and off for many, many years. And uh, you'd be at the counter, you know, doing your job, and I was a salesperson, you know, and, and we would have Hispanic or Mexican customers come in, and you know, and they would sometimes come in by themselves, or there would be pairs or groups, you know. And I remember a lot of times we'd have a couple of guys, you know, or something would come through the door, and then door would ring, ding dong, you know, and they'd come in, and I'd be at the counter, and they'd walk up, and they'd be smiling or whatever, and they'd be looking for something in particular, and you know, I'd, I'd be, you know, discussing their car and the equipment with both of them in English. Both would be interacting. You know, and oh, yeah, you you like this, and oh, you want two 12s, or you want an amplifier? Yeah, I want this, you know, and you'd have all this. And and then something weird would happen. It was a weird phenomenon. They would walk away from me, come together, and start speaking to each other in Spanish. And sometimes I'd hear pendejo in there, which means stupid, and gringo. (laughs) Stupid white guy, you know, and and then at that point I knew the sale was trashed. Uh, But it was just, it was like they wanted to interact with me. But when they went to interact with each other, they did not want me to know what they were talking about, and they did this all the time. And I remember Carl. Carl would be sitting there; he'd be talking. They'd turn around and go walk over, and they'd be, they'd be doing their thing, and Carl would be like, he'd just be frustrated because he knew that they were conspiring or something, you know. And uh, and I think in a similar way, that's what was playing out here. You know, we're talking to the king, but we really don't want you bozos to know what we're talking about over here. So they were trying to cloak or hide their conversation. I think that's what was going on. And, and also, I think this is probably even more important, that verse 2a, which is what we're looking at, is the actual transition point from Hebrew to Aramaic in the book. Uh, you might recall several weeks ago, I told you how the book of Daniel was written in both Hebrew and Aramaic, In 4a, that's the transition point. So chapter 2, 4a, that's where he switches to Aramaic. Like right when the Chaldeans start speaking Aramaic, Daniel switches to Aramaic and runs all the way up into the latter part of chapter 7. So I think that's interesting. What did the Chaldeans actually say to the king? Well, the first thing they said was, O king, live forever. Uh, This is like saying, long live the king you've probably heard of that expression. Long live the king. It's the same thing. This was a common greeting with kings in that day. You know, a, a king's subjects would, would wish him a long and prosperous life. And that is what the Chaldeans did here. Uh, and they also asked the king to describe his dream so they could give the interpretation. So he calls them in and wants them to give the interpretation. They say, hey, we pray that you live forever. We want you to live forever. You're the greatest king ever. They're paying a little lip service here, you know. And then they say, okay, well, all you got to do is tell us, give us an idea of what it is. Tell us about the dream and we'll definitely give you the interpretation. Now look at 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the expert astrologers, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Okay, so... Rather than describing his dream so that they could interpret it, he laid down a challenge that would result in either disaster or delight. Right? Now, I know for a fact that the Chaldeans were not anticipating this kind of response. They thought he would explain the dream and then that they would give him the interpretation. But instead, he says, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and I want you to tell me its meaning." They were not expecting that. I mean, this, this is like, right now, they're trapped. Uh, this, is, this is terrible for them. And I'm wondering if Nebuchadnezzar laid down this challenge because he was cranky and tired. You know, I don't know. I'm wondering if it's because the Chaldeans appear to be a little bit cocky. You know, you got these four groups, and they're the highest and the top, and and. and as soon as the opportunity is given, these guys step in front and try to take charge and try to take the glory. Maybe it had something to do with that. Maybe it's the fact that uh, they use the Aramaic. You know, oh, I, I know what you guys are trying to do. You're trying to talk to me in code, so these others don't know it. Well, I got a riddle for you. You know, you want to you want to be like that? I, I got. Okay, we can play that game. Uh, if you don't tell me what it is and its meaning, you're dead. So I think they might have bitten off a little more than they uh, than they had uh, wanted to here. And you must also note that these guys were on the king's payroll. Okay, these weren't groups that, you know, they, these these weren't, uh, you know, charitable organizations, you know, that that got donations. These guys were paid astrologers, paid servants of the king. They ate from his table. I mean, they were the top servants, so they got paid well. And so in in some sense, the king wants his money's worth. I've brought the best here, so much so that you should be able to tell me what the dream is and its meaning. So he wants his money's worth. Notice again that little phrase, the the word from me is firm. This was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, there will be no negotiation. There will be no way out of this. This is my challenge to you, and it is my final word or ruling. So what Nebuchadnezzar is warning them and saying, I'm not going to let you get out of this. This is the game, and you're going to play it. And the challenge was obviously twofold. First, they had to describe the dream without any assistance, pull it right out of midair, The king basically said, I had a dream, and I want you to tell me what it was about. Second, they had to decipher the dream or give its meaning. That would be interpretation. And if they failed, they would experience total and absolute disaster. You shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Translation, I will violently kill you, and I will destroy your homes. But if they succeeded, if they were able to describe the dream and decipher the dream, they would experience total and absolute delight. You shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Translation, I will give you wealth and fame. Now, if the punishment was as extreme as death and having their homes destroyed, then we must know that the reward was as extreme. These guys would have been rewarded. They would have been just filthy rich and probably had palaces of their own. Now, look at 7. What a challenge, huh? I'm wondering if at this point they're saying, I told you we shouldn't have stepped forward first. You dummy, you know? And so he told them, he laid down the challenge, and then this is how they responded. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king, (laughs) these guys are great, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation." Okay, so the Chaldeans knew they were in big trouble. And so they, it looks like here they tried to play dumb. Like they didn't understand the king's words. And so they proceeded to ask him again to describe the dream so they could give the interpretation. They're acting like they didn't hear him. Okay, let's go back to what we're supposed to be doing. You got to tell us what the dream was about and we'll tell you what it means. That's what they did. Like they didn't even hear his warning or anything. And what was actually happening here is this was just a stall tactic. This was just to buy them time. I think they believed, you know, if we just play dumb and drag this out, maybe the king will relent. Maybe he'll turn his anger and wrath or whatever it is that's going on here. If we just give him a moment, maybe he'll chill out. So let's just keep hitting him with that question. Tell us and we'll do it. Tell us and we'll do it. And how did... uh, Old Nebi responded to them, look at 8 and and 9a. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, (laughs) because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. So Nebuchadnezzar saw right through their little stall scheme, he knew what they were up to, he knew they were stalling, and he continued to warn them. A little paraphrase of 9a would be, you better do what I told you to do, or you and your families are dead, you and your houses are destroyed. And you think about that, the implications of destroying their homes. Wouldn't that not mean that their families, too, if they had them, would be destroyed? Of course. So this was like their death, the death of their families, and the destruction of their homes. Now, I didn't mention it earlier, uh, but the phrase, your houses shall be laid in ruins, has to do with turning their homes into dung heaps. Okay, that would be a place or the places where people discard their dung and their animals' dung. Poop. Poop piles, if you will. And 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 why would you do something like this? Well, you just think about it. This would that not be a disgrace to to be killed because of your incompetence with the king, to have your house destroyed, and then to have a bunch of poop stacked up on top of your ruins? That is the ultimate way to, to disgrace for a very long period of time, until at least your neighbors can't handle the stench in sight any longer. That's the ultimate way to to disgrace those who were incompetent and those who failed to serve the king rightly. And so it wasn't just that they would be killed, maybe their families would be killed, and that their houses would be bulldozed. It was that their houses would be turned into dung heaps. Now, this is is a practice that Gentile, non-Jewish, Uh, civilizations or cultures would do, the Jews would not do something like this. You couldn't have excrement and stuff like that within the camp or any of that. It had to be taken out of the camp. If you've ever read about the tabernacle and that whole, you know, the community of Israel during that time. So this was a a Gentile thing, but I think it's absolutely disgusting. And uh, what a threat that would be. 9B, you have agreed... Nebuchadnezzar is still telling him, look, if you don't do it, there's one sentence. 9b continues, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall show you uh, and and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So here we see some paranoia. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar became somewhat paranoid. He thought that the Chaldeans were, you know, fakers and that they were trying to conspire against him, that they were just trying to pay him lip service, that they were just trying to stall. Literally until, and they wanted, it was like they wanted to stay in this mode of deceiving the king and making the king feel and think that they were legit in their offices. And you get the idea from 9b that they wanted to do that throughout the duration of his reign until the next king came along. Uh, you know, you're just trying to feed me a bunch of bull while I reign until I'm not reigning any longer, and my, you know, successor comes. That's what he says to them. Pretty crazy. And he and he lays out the final warning, if you will. Paraphrase. He says, "Convince me that you are legitimate, that you are not trying to deceive me, that you know what the heck you're doing. Convince me that I'm paying you, and you're worth the money." by telling me the dream. If you can do that, then I'll know that you can give me the interpretation. So that's kind of his final warning. Verses 10 and 11. The Chaldeans, the expert astrologers, answered the king and said, now this is a little bold. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. There's not a person, there's not a man on earth who can meet your demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see, the Chaldeans were horrified at the king's unreasonable demand. They could not meet it, for they were diviners and not prophets. That is, they sought to discern patterns in events and dreams that foreshadowed the future, but they claimed no direct access to the mind of the gods. Such a demand was too difficult, according to their theology. The Babylonian gods... You know, you had uh, Marduk and these other gods that they worshipped. Of course, they were fake gods and idols, but uh, they were not known to their own people to reveal future plans and prophecy and these sorts of things. In fact, there, there was no such thing in that day of a Babylonian prophet. See, a prophet is one who can tell the future and do the thing that the king is asking for, but Babylon didn't have prophets because the gods, the false gods in Babylon never gave clues as to what's going to happen in the future. I mean, they were deaf, dumb, blind idols made of stone in these things. And so these guys are saying, what you're asking for is not in our wheelhouse. We cannot tell you what it is. And, 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 And the only way that we can give you an interpretation is if you describe the dream. And at that point, all they'd be doing is trying to they'd be trying to you know, put together some different factors and see if there's a pattern in his dream, and then they would guess according to those factors. They're just saying, there's, there's no way, there's no person on the face of the earth that can do such a thing. I love how they say no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing from a magician, enchanter, in Chaldean. And that statement might actually be true because no other king would expect those three groups of wise men to be able to do this particular task. The Chaldeans understood this. There was no way. And that is why they told the king it was impossible for anyone other than the gods themselves to meet his demands. And there is some truth in their statement there, isn't there? They couldn't come up with it and they were the best of the best. These were the best psychics and astrologers and you know, what have you, magicians in, in, in the whole land, they couldn't come up with it. And their statement, only the gods, well, as we will see later on in the chapter, only the one true God could give the interpretation. So they were a little bit right there. Look at verse 12. Of course, you know, this caused Nebuchadnezzar to come to his senses and, uh, you know, his rational mind came back to him and and he relented and threw a big party and Oh wait, verse 12, because of this the king was angry and very furious uh, and commanded that all, right, underline that, all, not just the Chaldeans, the ones who failed, all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. This is where we see the predicament. This is the predicament that all of the wise men of Babylon were facing certain death, that a death sentence had been passed upon them. That is the predicament. The king was angered by their refusal and by their incompetence. He must have thought, why in the heck am I paying you? You can't do this simple, you know, task. He was so angered by their incompetence and refusal That he issued an executive order to have all of the wise men of Babylon destroyed. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and especially the Chaldeans. You'll be first. And how were they to be executed? How were they to be destroyed? What did we read? They were to be what? Torn limb from limb. And then beyond that, have their houses laid in ruins turned into dung heaps now his executive order this death sentence it extended to daniel and his buddies because they were members of the wise men of babylon they were a part of that group they were a part of that team if you will and let me tell you this was a perilous predicament it was a perilous situation so the predicament, again, has to do with, or it had to do with this death sentence against Daniel and his buddies and many, many others like him, all of the wise men, if you will. Now, look at 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed, like as if their heads are on the chopping block. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So the executive order was sent uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's head of security, or chief of police, if you will, or sheriff. And he placed the wise men who were gathered in the king's court, right there, because they were all there in the king's court, he placed all of them on death row to await execution. So they're all there gathered in the king's quarters or before him, and they're, they've all failed at this task, and, and the, the order is literally probably passed to the chief of security, the chief officer of security, the secret service guy or whatever, and, and he gathers them, just don't you move, you're all under arrest. You're all going to be executed. Now Daniel and his buddies were not in the king's court at this time, which is interesting. All the wise men were gathered, but for whatever reason, they weren't there. And so a warrant for their arrest or something of that nature was issued. And a search began, but it didn't take long for these, you know, the marshals to go out and to locate Daniel. He might have been in his quarters at the king's palace, he did have his own home. But he might have been in his quarters because some of these guys had quarters at the King's Palace. So he was probably there chilling and they went and arrested him too. He was somewhere nearby. Now look at 14 and 15A. I mean, could you just imagine what Daniel's just chilling in his quarters or whatever? And then to have this the police come and basically kick down his door and tell him he's under arrest and <laughs> real. He's probably thinking, what happened? I left for five minutes. 14 and 14a. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. In 15a, he declared, Daniel declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? When Arioch, the, the, the captain of the king's guard, arrested Daniel, he didn't panic. He didn't get defensive. He certainly didn't run. He didn't try to bolt out the window if there was one. He didn't try to scooch past, you know, the, the guards and run down the hall and find a hiding place. He didn't do any of that. The text says he replied with prudence and discretion. I find this to be just astounding. Prudence means good judgment that allows someone to avoid danger or risks. In other words, Daniel didn't do anything in that situation to make his situation worse. He was cool, calm, and collected. Discretion means being careful about what you do and say so that people will not be either embarrassed or offended. And so what that means is that he was mindful of his words, He assessed the situation, knew that he was in some sort of trouble, was being placed under arrest, didn't freak out. He didn't say anything that would get himself in deeper trouble. He didn't respond in some weird way. He certainly didn't try to plead his case or argue or offend the captain of the guard here. And I would say that prudence and discretion are qualities that will characterize the life of a mature believer. And what's astounding is that Daniel was probably 17, 16, 17, or 18 at this point, and he possessed these qualities already. That's amazing because, I, I, I don't know, Dennis and I worked in youth ministry forever. I don't think I found any youth with, with much prudence or discretion. In fact, they had quite the opposite. Yeah, you know, what are you doing? What are you talking about? What are you you know, I was like, okay, you need to be punished. Yeah, you, know, you need to be disciplined. These are qualities that we should have. It's incredible. And he asked Ariok in a very discreet and respectful kind way, "Why is the decree of the king so urgent?" This was his way of saying, "What happened? Or what led to this? What led to my arrest? Why, are, why is this so expedited? Why are, why are you so quick to arrest me and these others? And he's just and he's not he's not, you know, he's not being sarcastic or any of that. He's he's very serious. What why? Why the hurry? What's going on here? Now look at 15 B. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Now this is Also astounding to me, have you ever noticed how arresting officers usually say very little at the time of arrest? I see this all the time on cops. Not that cops is the litmus test for all police and how it works, but, you know, it it just seems like cops are like pre-programmed to go and make an arrest and they don't do a lot of talking, you know. They usually state the charges, you are under arrest for this or that. And then what do they do? They read the Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney, blah, 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 blah. That's about it, right? It's usually the suspect who's, you know, ah, and the cop's like, he's like the Terminator, just silent, stoic. No, you're going to jail. You know, what about, no, you're going to jail. I mean, that's, they're just, that's it. They just, they're minimalists. They're not there to discuss and to talk about and to explain all the facets of why, the who, what, where, and why of the arrest or any of that. It's not the way they function. It's not the way they do it at all. They say what needs to be said and they leave it at that, but that is not what we see happening in 15b. Arioch listened to Daniel's question, okay, why is this so rushed and hurried? What's going on here? He listened to Daniel say that. And not only that, he answered Daniel's question in detail. It says, then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. He told Daniel exactly what went down between the Chaldeans and the king. Well, they couldn't describe and decipher his dream. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's a little bit of a hothead. He got really ticked off to the point of being infuriated. And he said, destroy them all. And then he signed a document, put his ring stamp on it, and that's why I'm here. I mean, he told him, you just don't see this with police. And this is fantastic that that Arioch did this for Daniel. Daniel then asked Arioch if he could speak with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is something that never happens either. You know, you get arrested, you don't... Can I go talk to the judge? Uh, You know, when you're arraigned in 72 hours... You, know, you don't get to go talk to, you don't get to go talk to the judge you don't get to go talk to the king he asked, can i okay i understand what you're saying can i speak with nebuchadnezzar that's what he asks for look at 16 and daniel went in that's into the king's presence into his chambers and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king okay so what we see here is that arioch obliged daniel He said, yes, you can see the king. Yes, you can speak to the king. And he not only said, yes, you can do that. I will bring you into his presence, into his chambers right now. He takes him from wherever he was, and he delivers him right into the king's chambers. Daniel approaches the throne reverently, as you would, you know, head bowed, total respect. Walks up, and then he asks the king, not a secretary, not an administrative assistant or anyone else. He says, Can I get a time where I can return and come back and, uh, you know, put me on your calendar where I can come back and tell you the, the dream and its interpretation? That's what he asked for. Give me a date and time and I will come back and I will tell you what the Chaldeans weren't able to tell you. I will tell you what you want to know. That's what he asks for. Basically, what Daniel did was he Asked for a stay of execution, did he not? He did. This was a stay of execution in which only a governor can grant. He comes in and says, "Hey, I'll give you the answer. Give me a little bit of time." That's and you know if the king agrees, that's a stay of execution. Okay, I'm not going to kill all of you right now, but I'm going to if you can't deliver. What was Daniel asking for? He was asking for a little bit of time that he might be able to seek his God. For the answer. Seek his God for the interpretation, the dream and its interpretation. And I would just say this was a, was a bold move. Why? Because the king was angry. He was furious. But I do believe too that the king wanted relief. I mean, think about it. If the Chaldeans couldn't deliver, if no one could deliver the dream and its interpretation, then he would likely keep having it and probably never sleep again. And his kingdom would be in jeopardy because it might have implications. The dream might have implications. So what happened? Did Nebuchadnezzar say, okay, no problem, you do that. Come back on September 21st, whatever. We don't know, do we? Well, certainly we do. If you just look right to the next verse in 17, we see that Nebuchadnezzar granted Daniel's request because it says Daniel went to his house. And we'll look at that next week. What we see here in verses 15b and 16 are more examples of God's favor toward Daniel. Uh, The first example was in, back in chapter 1, verse 9, with the chief eunuch. Uh, God caused, his name was Ashpenaz, to show favor, that's kindness toward Daniel, by listening to him, by conversing with him, and by granting his request not to eat the king's food or drink. God did the same thing here through Arioch and Nebuchadnezzar. God's favor was on Daniel's life, causing others around Daniel to show kindness and to pay attention and to listen and to even take his advice. Pretty amazing. I think it's extraordinary that God gave Daniel favor in the eyes of Babylon's top officials, right? The chief eunuch, the chief of the guard so far, and even Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar did not have to grant his request. He didn't even have to grant him an audience. And why did God give Daniel favor in the eyes of Babylon's top officials? It's because he was preparing to do a grand and extraordinary and glorifying work through Daniel and his buddies. Closing What sort of practical application can we take away from this text? I would say, don't get distracted during these difficult times. The fact is, is that Nebuchadnezzar is like many leaders in our country today, politicians and so on. Like him, they are godless, ignorant, unstable, irrational, angry, threatening, immoral, lawless, and even murderous in some ways, if you consider abortion and these things. You know, like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, politicians in our country today, and, you know, they think they are sovereign. (laughs) They think they're in control. They think they have all the power, you know. I'm the king of America, you know. They have that kind of arrogance about them that Nebuchadnezzar had. The fact is, as our text shows us that this is untrue, it shows us that, that elected officials or appointed officials or earthly officials, no matter who or they are or what type they are, it shows that they are not sovereign, it shows that they are not ultimately in control, and it shows that they are not ultimately powerful. Nebuchadnezzar was making moves, no doubt, he was doing what he wanted, he was ruling his kingdom in accordance with his wisdom and knowledge, he was doing exactly what was in his heart exercising his will, I'll kill who I want to kill, I'll destroy whatever homes I want to destroy, I'll enact whatever programs and policy I want. He was doing that, but even though he was working and making moves, God was the one holding the strings. Not in a puppet way, but God was at work behind the scenes. You just think about this for a moment. You think about the sovereignty of God in this story, in the first 16 verses. God was the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place. Didn't originate with Nebuchadnezzar. God gave that prophetic dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And guess what? God kept him from understanding it, didn't He? You see, that's an example of God's sovereignty. You know, God started with that dream he started the chain of events that led to that death sentence he he sets things in motion that we're all saying what is going on and then bam he does what he was aiming to do through it all along and we say now i get it how amazing how glorious how wonderful God started with Nebuchadnezzar in this scenario, in this historical event. He started the chain of events that led to the death sentence. Why? So he could provide the interpretation which would reveal his supreme power and supreme wisdom over all of the Babylonian gods, including over Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was a god, so that in the end he could receive much praise and glory. He gave him the dream. He didn't let him have the interpretation so he could give the interpretation so he could receive the glory. That's what God did. Our government and and country may seem out of control at the present moment, but make no mistake, God is in control and he is fulfilling his plan and I guarantee you it will bring him much praise and glory when he brings it all together. You see, as Christians, we just we want to divorce God from this current administration. We want to divorce Him from all these things are happening, and and we don't think that God is sovereign. That He actually appoints presidents, He appoints kings and removes kings. It says this all throughout Scripture. I'm sure there were the wise men thought that things were spiraling out of control in Babylon when they got handed the death sentence, and had no concept that actually the one true living God Yahweh was at work through the whole scenario and preparing to bring about something that would reveal Him to them and His glory and His infinite wisdom. Don't you think that the same thing is happening here in our day, in our nation, and in every other place throughout the world? That God is actually behind what's going on? And that He's working things out for His glory? If it was true of Daniel's day, it has to be true of our day. So... Don't get distracted. Don't lose hope. You know how you'll lose your hope? If you put your hope in a politician. Don't put your hope in them. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep trusting God. You learn from Daniel too that God is in control, that he's working through all these events to bring about his praise and glory for our good. You believe that. Lastly, does this historical event parallel with the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Absolutely. It does so in a profound way. The wise men of Babylon had been given the death sentence, and this was a predicament they could not overcome on their own. They were helpless and hopeless. They needed to be rescued. But God intervened through Daniel He worked through him to bring about a stay of execution and temporary, according to where we're at in in the storyline so far, temporary deliverance from death. And all of humanity has been given the death sentence. Death is the sinner's punishment and we are all sinners and therefore deserve death. And you know what? As it was with the wise men, this is a predicament we cannot overcome on our own. Like the wise men, we too are helpless, hopeless, and in need of rescue. But God intervened through His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. God sent Him into the world as the Lamb of God to permanently deliver us from sin, death, and hell through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. God's temporary deliverance through His servant Daniel foreshadowed God's permanent deliverance through His Son, the Lord Jesus. That is the parallel. You see, all of Scripture points to Christ somehow. And if you look hard enough, you'll find it everywhere you read.